Well, good morning. Heard a story last week about a couple of brothers that went into business together. One was a veterinarian, and the other was a taxidermist. So either way, you got your old dog back. So I'm here to tell you, one way or another, you got your old dog back this morning. It's good to be here. I'm not going to bore you with gracious. I'm not going to bore you with a, uh, a description of our vacation, but I will tell you we had a chance to uh, check out our new granddaughter and uh, found her to be acceptable. She's uh, she's a keeper. It was uh, just a very restful time, but we are glad to be back. We believe it or not, we uh, missed you all. Uh, I'd like to have you turn to First uh, Kings 17, please, and I'd like to start a short four-week series on the life of Elijah. I'm sure you've heard about Elijah, uh, Israel's uh, wildest and wooliest prophet. Uh, comes down to us in history as a as an old curmudgeon. Elijah came out of the uh, back country of Gilead, the the area that is now known as the country of Jordan, uh, and just wreaked havoc with the evil establishment of of his day. He was uh, Queen Jezebel, the infamous, notorious Queen Jezebel's nemesis. It's my conviction that, that Elijah is the greatest of all the prophets. Moses is more prominent, gets, more, gets better press, but uh, he was not able to do what Elijah did. Elijah did something that none of the other prophets ever did. He turned a nation around. He took a nation uh, that was committed to idolatry and he turned it back to the living God of, of Israel. As a matter of fact, his spirit and power, that's the term that's, that's used to refer to Elijah, his spirit and power is the standard against which all other prophets are measured. John the Baptist, for example, was said to come, would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. I think he was the greatest of, of all the prophets. Not as well known as some of the others, but in my opinion, the, the greatest. Now, uh, Elijah's story actually begins with a conjunction. Chapter 17, verse 1. My, my translation says, Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, the word that's translated now in the New American Standard Bible is actually and. Uh, conjunctions join one thing to another, one sentence or one paragraph to what precedes it or what comes after this particular conjunction joins the story of Elijah with an account of Ahab and Jezebel and uh, their uh, misdeeds. Let me begin reading with chapter 16, verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Samaria was the capital of the uh, northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He set a, 
a world record in unrighteousness, or as they say in the Olympics, if not a world record, at least a personal best. In this case, it was a personal worst. The text goes on to say that uh, this man did more evil even than Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had been the standard of unrighteousness uh, before. It came about as though it had been a small thing, a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were who were before him. That's a severe indictment of this of this awful man. Ahab's evil centered in uh, his royal marriage to uh, Jezebel. Jezebel came from Sidonia, one of the chief cities of Phoenicia. Phoenicia was off to the west of Israel. They're more rich and famous neighbors. Phoenicia's colonies dotted the Mediterranean. Her navies at this time had circumnavigated Africa. They were they were a powerful, wealthy nation, and Ahab wanted a piece of the action. So he married into the royal family to consolidate a relationship with with the Phoenicians. And as a part of the deal, he got this uh, this wicked woman, Jezebel. When she moved into Samaria, she really moved in. Bags, baggage, and bales. She brought along all of her, her gods and goddesses. There's no question who wore the royal pants. She, she ran the household. She ran the nation. Baalism very quickly became the state religion in Israel. She got Ahab to build a worship center in Samaria, the capital city, and she supported, apparently supported 450 prophets out of her own private funds built another huge temple in Jezreel that would hold immense crowds of worshipers, uh, sanctuaries, altars dotted the landscape. The altars to Yahweh were broken into powder. As I said, Baal became the state religion. Prophets were hounded and killed. And uh, the schools of the prophets were closed. Fires of persecution raged. This fellow named Obadiah we'll talk about a little bit about next week who was able to save a few of the prophets by hiding them in caves around Mount Carmel, limestone caves. They're, they're the ones that he, the writer of Hebrews refers to when he says some hid in caves and holes in the ground. As far as we know, there were only 7,000 in all of Israel that didn't bow the knee to Baal or kiss his feet. But they were suppressed and kept silent. Hardly, even, hardly anyone even knew that, that they were there. It's terrible, terrible. Situation. Baalism is the most defiled and defiling religion the world has ever known. Uh, and the Phoenician form of it was was the worst. There's a lot of evidence that the that Phoenicia, the colony of Phoenicia was was founded by the Sodomites when they were driven out of Sodom in the destruction of of Sodom and the cities of the plain. They migrated to Phoenicia. A lot of evidence of their history that they came from the Vale of Sidim. And uh, they brought their depraved uh, practices with them. Every kind of deviant sex, violence, and the horrors that you read about with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, in addition to that background, we, we also have some of their literature. A number of years ago, a 
Syrian peasant was plowing in his field and the blade of his plow struck a flagstone, flipped it over, and he looked down into a hole. It was a subterranean uh, stairway leading down into a burial chamber, and he alerted archaeologists in the area, and they came and started excavating. He discovered this huge city. It's called the city of Ugarit, and he found a library. Uh, they, could, they knew some of the languages are all Near Eastern languages, and they were able to quickly read some of them. And some of them were in a language that was uh, before that unknown. They were able to decipher it. It's very much like Hebrew. It's alphabetical instead of syllabic, so they deciphered it quickly and translated it. This language is called Ugaritic today. You can study it in, in uh, uh, some schools, universities. And you can read this terrible stuff. They found a whole library of erotic literature. It describes exactly what Canaanite religion was like. It's filled with violence, rape, and horrible atrocities. Every kind of deviant sex you can, you can imagine. And that was the religion that was foisted on, on Israel. And it was into that terrible, dark, dangerous place that Elijah was, was thrust. One single solitary man. Now I ask you, what's, what, you know, what's new? You, you look around us today. And See the terrible violence. You know, our rape and murder rates here in the United States are three times the rates of, of other Western nations. We are anything but a gentler and kinder nation. We are getting more and more cold and cruel and violent and dangerous. A very dark and dangerous place to live. And uh, all kinds of things are being pumped into our culture by rock stars, you know, uh, dismembering females, and offing cops. And terrible things, terrible things. And the question comes to mind, what in the world can I do? I've got no political clout. I have one vote. I have. What can I do in this terrible, vicious scene? What impact can I have on, on my times? And that's why I wanted to study the story of Elijah, because this man single-handedly turned the nation around. Now, if it can be proved that uh, Elijah had some, some capacity that we don't have, some gene that made him especially gritty, then his story is not ours. But if we can demonstrate, as James puts it, that he was a man just like us, then his story is, is our story as well. Now let's look at uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead. Uh, Tishbe, he's described as a Tishbite, that is, he's from the town of Tishbe. Tishbe is a little hick town that's disappeared. Anyway, they don't even know where it is today. A little backwater, insignificant town. And it's just like God. He's always calling into a place of prominence and ministry, someone that no one ever heard of before, some single, solitary, insignificant, weak uh, person, some man or woman to undo the evil that that's being done by others. Uh, Tishbe was in Gilead, which is in modern-day Jordan. It's on the Golan. Back then, uh, the hills were covered with dense uh, forests. Turks cut most of the trees down to run their railroads. It's fairly barren today. But back then, it looked very much like the Idaho backcountry. As a matter of fact, Gilead was to Israelites what our backcountry is to us today. The people there were tough. They lived on the edge. And Elijah looked the part. 
Uh, he's described idiomatically in 2 Kings 1 as a lord of hair. Most of the translations say he was a hairy man. But the Hebrew says he was a lord of hair. That is, he, you know, he had bristly beard and hair sticking straight out, you know, enough hair to stuff a mattress. And wild man. And he wore leather clothes, buckskins. You know, I think of him as an earlier form of buckskin billy. Or Actually, the way I think of him is... Uh, is like McLeod. Remember McLeod? Uh, I can see uh, Elijah stalking out of the back country with his worn-down boots and faded jeans and turned-out uh, sheepskin coat and battered Stetson, you know, stalking the streets of the big city. Remember, remember that series? And I think that's what Elijah must have been like in, in his day. I don't know much about his upbringing. Uh, his parents were probably part of the 7,000 didn't bow the knee to Baal because uh, they gave him the name Yahweh is my God. That's what Elijah means. Yah is my God. His name reflects their faith, I believe. And they imparted to this young man the reality of the unseen God. Uh, their faith was just that infectious. He uh, He contracted it over the years and and for him, his theme was the living God before whom I stand. It appeared that God was dead in Israel, but as far as Elijah and his parents were concerned, God was alive and, and well. He couldn't be seen. He operated in the realm of the unseen, but he was very, very real. And that's what governed Elijah's life. It's that perspective, and that's what drove him, and that's what gave him the resources uh, that enabled him to do what what he actually did. Now, uh, we're told that uh, in the text that uh, he uh, walked into the court in Samaria and addressed the king and queen, and you might think that that's the first thing that uh, that happened, but actually it wasn't. According to James, the first thing that happened is that he began to pray. If you read James chapter 5, James tells us that uh, Elijah was a a man who gave himself to persistent prayer. He says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah prayed, and it did not rain. You can check out that uh, statement in, in James chapter 5. Uh, Elijah's righteous soul was vexed by the wickedness around him, just as ours is. And he wanted to know what he could do. What could, he had no clout. He had no political power no power base. He didn't know anybody in Samaria. Had no important contacts, no influence. So the little town of Tishbe, an unknown. What could he do? How, what could he, how could he have a redeeming effect upon his, uh, his society? But James says he began to pray. It's always the place to begin. And he prayed persistently. Impatiently, we don't know how long he prayed. The term "fervent prayer" is not suggestive of some particular kind of prayer, some force in her voice or some intonation. It really has to do with persistence. As Jesus put it, men and women ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, uh, keep on praying. Don't give up. That statement is made in the context of the story of the importunate widow, the woman that uh, just kept knocking on the door of the uh, uh, unjust judge until he gave her what she what she begged him for, and 
The point that Jesus is making is that even, you know, if, if an unjust judge is worn down by the repeated pleas of this widow, how much more will a loving Heavenly Father care for you when you come to Him? But He encourages everyone to just pray and keep on praying. That's the place to begin. See, most of us run around like chickens with our heads cut off, involved in this cause and that cause, doing this and doing that, and dissipating a whole lot of energy, and really not knowing what God wants us to do. First thing to do is begin to pray. To pray patiently. Pray persistently. And as Elijah prayed, it came to him that he should pray that it would not rain. Now, that, didn't, that wasn't just a random thought that came into his head. As Elijah prayed, God reminded him of Moses' uh, terrible warning in the book of Deuteronomy. Let, let me read that to you. You don't need to turn to it. It's in the 11th chapter of uh, Deuteronomy. Moses said, It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that I'll give you rain for your land in, in season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and I'll give grass in, in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied, but beware, lest your heart be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods. If you do... God will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you'll be driven out of the good land which the Lord is, is giving you. See what happened is, as Elijah began to pray, he was reminded of God's revelation that if Israel was disobedient, God would withdraw the rain. And so he began to pray along the lines of the promises of God. You see, that's what prayer is. Prayer is not random shots. It's not chaotic, haphazard asking. Prayer is not a matter of bending God's ear. It's the means by which God bends our ear. He gets our attention as we come before Him and we ask Him what we should do. Then He will lead us to the next step. Effective, fervent prayer is praying according to the promises of God. Now that's a remarkable insight into God because most in the prayer, because most of us just think of prayer of asking for something, but basically it's asking according to the will of God or praying in Jesus' name, which is another way of putting the same thing, finding out what God has promised, and then praying along those lines. And that's the means by which God brings us into union with Him, so that we cooperate with Him in what He has promised to do. See, it's not prayer is not the means by which we bend God to us. It's the means by which He bends us to Him so that we can accomplish His very special purpose for us, the purpose that He has purposed from eternity. And so in Elijah's case, he was led to pray this terrible prayer that it might not rain. Now just think of it. In an agrarian society that was utterly dependent upon two rainy periods, early and latter rains, a drought would be terribly destructive. The economy would fall apart. That's exactly what was what was happening. Interesting thought. I don't suggest this. I'm simply saying it went through my head as I was looking at this passage. Instead of praying for a healthier economy, instead of praying for a turnaround in our economy, perhaps we should be praying for a deeper recession because that may bring our nation to its knees. Now, uh, as Elijah prayed, uh, uh, 
God gave him the next step. God never tells us the end from the beginning. We like to read the last page of the book and then, then we can go back and, and read everything else with assurance, but God doesn't operate that way. He just gives us the next step. That's all. It's all he promises. And uh, the next step for Elijah was to uh, walk into the, into the Oval Office and announce to Ahab and to Jezebel that it wasn't going to rain anymore. Oh, that must have been scary. You think of the tyrant Ahab and his murderous uh, wife. She'd already killed off the prophets, though she could get her hands on. And, and Elijah was, I'm sure, frightened right out of his wits. But that's what God called him to do, to a position of prominence, to a position of political influence. That was God's will for him. Now, that may not be God's will for you and for me. Some are called to positions of power and responsibility and authority. They're called to high places, to public office. Others are called to more obscure places. The issue is, what does God want you to do? See, we, we assume from the, from the beginning that this is the way we're going to set things. We never know how we're to set things right. Only God knows our job is to follow Him. Step at a time, day at a time. What does God want me to do? Today, if God pushes you into a position of, of, of prominence, that's wonderful. If, if your place is less prominent, that is His will for you. The whole issue is, what is the will of God for me? Remember the story of Peter and John? Peter was told that he would be manhandled and murdered. And, and, and Peter says, points to John and he says, what, what will this man do? And Jesus said, in effect, that's none of your business. You follow me. You follow me. So as we begin to pray, we begin to understand more and more of God's character and His revelation, and as we put our roots down into Him and we grow in grace and we get to know Him and we follow Him, we endeavor to do what He's called us to do by the power of His Spirit, then He will let us know step by step by step by step what He wants us to do. We don't need to worry about that. As I often say, the only people that don't find God's will are people that don't want it. If you want it, you will know what God wants you to do. So Elijah marched into the uh, courtroom and the courtyard, or the uh, court, royal court, and uh, made this terrible announcement. It's not going to rain because he had to show them the connection between their sin and their economic condition. And incidentally, I, I have to say that I, I think those in power in our country need to understand that, that principle because I'm, I want to tell you frankly, Mr. Bush is not the answer to our economic problems. Mr. Clinton is not the answer to our economic problems. Mr. Perot is not the problem, not the answer. A republic, yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time. I haven't talked to anything but trees for six weeks. <clears throat> A Democratic Congress is not the problem. We are the problem. You understand that? Is that why, as old possum Pogo says, we've met the enemy and he's us. We are the problem. There's no man that's going to lead us out of our problems. No woman that's going to lead us out of our problems apart from a spiritual renewal. That's the problem with America. We have left God out of our lives. That's why we're in the terrible mess that we're in. And no amount of fixing things in Washington, D.C. is going to change anything. People have to see the relationship between the sins of our nation and the terrible conditions that we're in. 
And that was uh, Elijah's call. And that took a lot of courage to walk right into... You know, he, he, he didn't know if he was going to make it out alive. He, probably, he thought he would probably die. This is obviously a very shorthand account. We don't, we don't really know all that Elijah went through. One knee must have said to the other, let's shake as he walked in there. And, and then he made his announcement and probably turned on his heels and ran for his life. I don't know, but he did it. He did it. He believed what... Uh, the writer of Hebrews believes, believed when he said, he has said, with reference to God, he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, I can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men can do to me. And uh, he marched in and said, as the living God uh, has decreed before whom I stand, there will be no rain in this place for three and a half years. It ain't going to rain no more, no more. And then he walked out. And he walked out unscathed because he was enjoying the protection of, of God. And uh, verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. I read that. I was sitting under a great big western cedar tree and looking out over the Puget Sound. I read that a few weeks ago. And it just struck me that the word of God came to him. Twice it says in this, actually three times in this passage. It says the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You don't have to go looking the word of the Lord in the most in the darkest, most dangerous places, the word of God will come to you. You will know God's will if if you want it. And uh, the word of the Lord arrived; it found him out, and uh, he said something uh, I'm sure that Elijah didn't expect. He was probably looking for another uh, position of prominence. And God said, "Go away from here. And turn eastward." And hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, a little wadi that flows down into the Jordan over in what today is the country of Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. I want you to underscore that word in your thinking, that, uh, that pronoun, there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and Meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and, and he would drink, uh, from the brook. God says, go hide yourself. Get out of the action. Gave him the gift of obscurity. You know, we, we, we like public places. We like to be seen and heard and acknowledged and recognized. And very often God, as a friend of mine says, just puts us in his pocket. He sets us aside. Takes us out of the place where we think we're indispensable. Because you see, we get it in our head that if I'm not there, nothing's going to happen. I still remember the, the day I came back from some trip and I was praying with Carolyn and I just thanked the Lord for taking care of things while I was gone and Carolyn laughed right out loud. I said, what, what's the matter? And she said, well, who do you think takes care of it while you're here? And I get... I get this notion in my head that I'm indispensable. If I'm not here, not, you know, things, <laughs> I gotta be in the action. Gotta be where things are happening. I gotta make them happen or they're not gonna happen. And then God just takes us right out and just hides us away. Gives us that wonderful gift of anonymity and obscurity. He hides us. So we can begin to learn His sufficiency. See, that's what it's all about. It's a simple fact of God's sufficiency. There's nothing 
that he can't do. There's nothing that he can't provide. And the way he did it for Elijah was to feed him by a little brook that you would normally expect to dry up almost all streams in Palestine except the Jordan River are intermittent. They only flow when it rains. And for a long period of time, time, drought, had already struck the land. This little brook continued to bubble along. Elijah had an adequate uh, supply of water. Ravens fed him day, morning and night. Most unlikely uh, source of food. We get our word ravenous from, from ravens. They're greedy, avaricious birds. They don't share their meals with anybody. And God chose that highly unlikely source to bring food. Every morning, ravens came flapping in, shared their bread, their meat with Elijah. And every evening, they flapped in. Day after day after day, Elijah's needs were met. Bare subsistence, but his necessities were, were met. My God, Paul says, shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, I look back on my friend Ray Stedman's life. Ray is very, very sick now. He has cancer. He's not expected to live long. And as I look back on his life, I have to say the one thing that Ray taught me out of the 18 years that I was on the staff of his church and in our friendship over the 15 years that I've been here is the sufficiency of Christ. He's always adequate. He comes through. He supplies just what, what we need. And uh, we certainly see it here. God supplying through the ravens. I was reading uh, F.B. Meyer's little commentary on Elijah. He tells a wonderful story about a widow who was reading the story of Elijah to her uh, little boy. And the cupboard was bare. No food. And the house is cold. There's no coal to heat the house. And she read the story. And the little boy said, uh, Mother, can we keep the door open tonight so the ravens can fly in? And uh, she agreed to that even though it was very chilly outside. She left the door open. It just happened that a, that a man from the village walked by and he noticed the open door. And he thought, that's strange on such a cold night. And he stuck his head in the door and asked what was wrong and discovered their condition and smiled. And he said, I'll be your raven. And he went and brought them food and brought them coal and he took care of them in the cold winter months ahead, supplied all their needs till they were able to provide for themselves. And it, that's the way it is with God. He, the ravens come in the most unlikeliest form, but but he is sufficient. The key, as I said, the, the, the key pronoun, the, the, the key pronoun here is there. I, I, I will, I will meet your needs there. And there is the will of God. If the prodigal had been in the will of God when he went into the far country, God would have given him his daily bread there. But he was out of God's will. There's, there's no promise that God will meet our needs if we're not following Him. But if we're where God wants us to be, He will meet our needs there. So if you're in a very difficult marriage and you're trying to hang on to it because you're convinced that's God's will, He will meet your needs there. If you're in some hidden, obscure place and uh, you, you can't you're overlooked, nobody really cares, underappreciated, God will meet your needs there. That's the important thing. Are we where God wants us to be? If we're where He wants us to be, He'll meet our needs. Now, as it happened, uh, the brook dried up. Verse 7. Because there was uh, no rain in the land. Probably one year transpired from the time uh, 
Elijah was sent to Cherith until the brook began to dry up. And the word of the Lord came to him in that place and said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and, and stay there. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. See, again, as long as Elijah stayed in the center of God's will, he promised to provide. Again, a most unlikely source, a widow. And as we read on into the story, which we're not going to have time to do, a starving widow. She had no food. She had a little bit of oil in her, in her cruise, a little bit of grain. She was going to make one last meal, feed it to her boy, and then die. And uh, God says, I'm going to provide for you there. Now, you notice the word command, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. On the one hand, there was provision being made for Elijah, but on the other hand, God was making provision for her as well. Phoenicia was the darkest place on the face of the earth. That was the spawning bed for Baalism, as I said. It's also the place where uh, Elijah was likely to be overtaken and killed. He, you know, he, he the drought had hit Phoenicia as well, and they knew that he was responsible for it, at least they thought he was. And so his life was not uh, safe. He was in jeopardy in, in Phoenicia, and, and God said, I'm going to provide for you there. Well, why did he send Elijah there? Why didn't he send Elijah to Ethbaal, the, the, the king of Sidonia? Why did he make the same announcement there in the court that he made in Samaria? Because you never know about God. He's the most creative individual in the world. You never know what he's going to do next. And his will is always different for each one of us. But it's always good and acceptable and perfect, as Paul puts it. Now, as I say, on the one hand, God sent Elijah there to provide for him. On the other hand, he wanted to provide for this woman because she was not only starving physically, she was starving spiritually as well. Uh, we won't take time to read the story, but in verse 12, when when Elijah first uh, meets this, uh, this, this young widow, she said to him, as the Lord your God lives, Yahweh was his God. But at, at the end of the story, in verse 24, she said, Now I know that, that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She herself embraced the truth. She was like the woman at the well to whom Jesus was sent. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in commenting on this text in, in Luke 8, says uh, that uh, she was sent, or he was sent. Elijah was sent to Zarephath. He puts it this way. He was not sent to any of the widows in, in Israel. A lot of widows in Israel, Jesus said. He wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath. That's the defining word. He was sent. God saw her need. Does God care about single parents? Is God concerned about the the hard life that you're going through because you're having to raise a child all by yourself? Is God concerned about the physical hunger that you experience, the emotional hunger, the spiritual hunger? You bet your life He is. And in this case, uh, He prepared His prophet and sent him there to that widow in Zarephath. To say, you just never know about God. You never know what His strategy is. Uh, God wanted to uh, evangelize the Roman Empire, so he puts Paul in 
in jail. And he ends up being shipped at Roman expense over to Rome, where he's shackled to uh, the palace imperial guard, these fine young men that were the elite young men of the, of the Roman Empire. And uh, he writes, Paul writes to the people in Philippi, and he says, uh, the things that have happened to me have proceeded into the furtherance of the gospel. Oh yes, he says at the end of his book, greet those who are of the house of, those who are of the house of Caesar, greet you. And, uh, these, these young men, one after another, as they were shackled to the apostle, were finding Christ as their savior, and they were going back to the barracks and winning their friends, and the gospel was spreading right from the center of the Roman Empire. Who would have thought up that strategy? God. God does. And it wasn't above, uh, keeping Paul incarcerated for two years in Caesarea and putting him through a very difficult shipwreck and making his life fairly difficult for a period of time in order to get the gospel of those those young men in the heart of, of the power centers of, of Rome. There's that fellow that Jesus encountered in the Decapolis. He says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. There are folks over there that haven't heard, so they get in the boat and they row all the way over to the other side of Galilee. They go through that terrible storm in which they almost sunk and they get to the other side as this demon-possessed man comes out. Jesus casts out the demon into the swine. And, and this man finds Jesus to be the one that he's been looking for all of his life. Jesus says to the disciples, let's go back to the other side. They get in the boat, go all the way to the other side. This man goes all over the Decapolis telling what great things God had done for him. You never know about God. God sends Francis Schaeffer over to Switzerland with Child Evangelism Fellowship to work with children. And he ends up working with university students all over the world, touching the lives of, of intellectuals. You just never know. See? You never know what God is going to do. So creative. Our job is simply to follow Him. Now let me uh, try to summarize. We're, we're, we're going to come back to uh, this story again and, and again. Next week we're going to talk about uh, Elijah's experience on top of Mount uh, Carmel. It struck me again as I read through this, uh, what's called the Elijah cycle, these, these chapters in First and Second Kings, that uh, Elijah really had only one day in the sun. He had one 24-hour period of prominence. There was that momentary appearance before Ahab and Jezebel, but, but really the significant event in Elijah's life was just that one day on the top of Mount Carmel. It was that one event that turned the entire nation around, turned them from idolatry to the worship of, of the living God. He exterminated Baal worship in one day. His whole life was preparation for that one day. See? And uh, I got thinking about our lives and it uh, occurs to me that uh, that our whole lives are really just preparation for maybe one event, maybe someone you sit next to whom you share the gospel with. Uh, I, I, I think of a man today who's a very, very prominent uh, evangelist. He's known all over the world, having a tremendous impact upon uh, these times. He started out as a teller in a bank, and a friend of mine just had an opportunity to talk to him briefly and encourage him in the Lord. He was already a believer. And, and now this man is in the position of, of prominence because of that one contact. And 
It just struck me again that, that our lives are, are really preparation for those moments when God wants to put us to use. We never know. And the really important thing for us is to get to know God. God takes very ordinary people like you and me, and He transforms their lives, and He makes them wonderfully effective as they get to know Him. It has nothing to do with our intelligence or our background or our education or our personality or our experience. It has to do with understanding and knowing God. That's where it all begins. Everything begins with worship. Everything flows out of devotion to Christ. Jeremiah puts it this way. He says, don't boast in your wealth. Money never did anybody any good. Money doesn't change the world. Don't boast in your power or authority. Human authority never accomplished anything of eternal value. Boast in this, that you understand and know God. Because uh, when we know God, uh, then He's able to put us into the right place at the right time so we can talk to the right person and say the right things to accomplish the right results. It all begins with getting to know God. Now, I'm going to make it my personal uh, cause this year to slow everybody down. I've already delivered my soul of uh, a lengthy dissertation to the staff this past week, and I'm going to say it every week, and I may say it every Sunday up here. I think we all need to slow down, stop being so active, stop doing so much, and spend more and more time getting to know God so He can get us to the right place at the right time to say the right thing to the right person. To give ourselves time for worship and devotion, for time in the Word, time for prayer. You know, instead of reading the newspaper in the morning and getting everybody else's opinion on everything in the world, we need to, uh, as the psalmist puts it, awaken the, the morning with prayer. Begin to devote ourselves to asking God what He wants to accomplish in our families, our personal lives, our community, our schools, our nation. And to ask Him what He wants us to do. Because He has a plan and a purpose, a place for each one of us. And then uh, just follow Him. That's all. Just follow Him. I have no idea what He's going to do with you. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to follow Him. And I know that it's up to Him then to get me to the right place at the right time, to talk to the right person, to say the right thing. And maybe it's a position of prominence. Maybe some place of political authority and responsibility. But maybe it's a so-called lowly place of obscurity where nobody sees what you're doing. But I can guarantee you that if you are there, if you're in the will of God, it will be a place where you will have influence upon our, our age. I just want to remind you of that little poem that, that I often quote. I don't know the author. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. And, and he pointed out a little spot and said, tend that place for me. I said, oh, no, not that. Why, no one would ever know. No matter how hard I work, not that little place for me. The answer came. It wasn't harsh. He answered me tenderly. Nazareth was a little place. And so was Galilee. 
So just start in that little place, in that place of obscurity. Get to know and understand God and ask Him what He wants you to do. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we look around us at, at our decaying uh, moral environment that seems devoid of of any real faith, any consideration for others, any compassion, a little humility or forgiveness, none of the uh, graces of life that make, uh, make life worth living. We live in an increasingly cold environment. And uh, there's so much violence, uh, so much deviance from the truth. And we, we want to be involved. We want our lives to count. Not one of us wants to to drift into a inactivity and, and irrelevance. But help us, Lord, not to focus on activity and, and wanting to be relevant. Help us to focus on you and, and get to know you. Invest our, our time and our energy, our minds, our lives in understanding you and knowing you. Loving you with all, all of our heart and our soul and our mind. And then as we do so, we, we pray that you would make of us intercessors, men and women of prayer who care deeply about our surroundings and pray for them. Pray according to your purposes and according to your will. And then we trust you to let us know what we should do, where we should invest our time and our lives. We know that you're able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. You're able to exceed the images and fantasies, the wildest anticipations of our lives. We want to follow you into the excitement that is to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.